Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a quick note before the episode. Thank you all for your support and listening to the podcast. If you haven't done so yet and you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review where you listen. And if you enjoy this episode, consider buying me a coffee or checking out the Patreon. Hello, listeners. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of Laura Norton's new book, Lay Them to Rest. On the road with the cold case investigators who identify the nameless. Laura, who's also the host of the Fall Line and One Strange Thing podcast, has written a riveting book about how investigators, experts, and forensic scientists identify John or Jane Doe cases. In her book, she focuses on one case in particular, Ina Jane Doe, whose partial remains were found in a state park in Illinois in January of 1993. The incredible part? Laura and her team of experts managed to figure out who Ina was. Now, they're hoping to solve her murder. You can find Laura's new book, Lay Them to Rest, on Amazon and where you get your books. I strongly recommend it to those of you looking for something passionately and meticulously researched and incredibly well written. Laura has a background in creative writing and archival and primary research, which makes Lay Them to Rest a page-turner full of information I had never known about. You can find Laura on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I've linked to all of her social in the description, as well as the book. You can also find her at laurenorton.com. That's Laura with an H on the end. And you can check out her book at laythemtorestbook.com. Again, I've linked to all of this in the description. One note, despite Laura telling me the correct pronunciation before our recording that it was Ina Jane Doe, I resorted to saying Ina several times throughout our interview. So I want to apologize to Laura and the listeners, but the correct pronunciation for the case that's in Laura's book is Ina Jane Doe. Enjoy my interview with Laura. My name is 
let's get into you and uh, about your book, Lay Them to Rest. It was a terrific read. Uh, I'm so curious, and I know you you talk about some of this in the book, and I, I did my best with the questions to try and not, A, provide too many spoilers, and B, not uh, you know make questions that are too repetitive of information that's in the book. But I am curious about the journey of finding about the uh, Ina Jane Doe case and you know how how did you find out about the case and then you know what was the the crux that made you want to go like this this could be a book and i need to write about this in that format so i was already writing a book um already planning to write a book i was first approached to write a book i think in 2020 and that's when we had just covered the victims of samuel little on our podcast the fall line and that coverage was coverage that was, oh gosh, a year and a half or two years in the making. Um, and we were very focused on the victims, um, not on Samuel Little. Um, and I think that most people are familiar with Samuel Little, but if they're not, um, he's considered to be one of the most prolific serial killers, um, certainly in the United States, but perhaps even in the world. Um, but there's a lot of unsolved cases tied to him. Um, and particularly um, unidentified persons and persons where there are confessions, but they haven't been tied to cases yet. Um, and there has been some disagreement about perhaps how many cases, but unidentified persons um, are a passion area of mine. And through our coverage, um, which was really intense, really research heavy, um, it struck a chord with people. And at that point, literary editors, um, editors at publishing houses started reaching out to me to see if I would be interested in writing a book. Um, and I was interested in writing a book, but not about serial killers. I have no interest in serial killers. I think we should talk about them less, perhaps. What I was interested in writing about was unidentified persons. Because since 2018, and even before that, I've always been interested in cases that have little or no coverage. But since 2018, I had really come to understand that unidentified persons cases, John and Jane Doe's, um, have the least coverage. And that's because they're difficult to cover. Many people in all forms of media, but I think especially in podcasting, would like to cover John and Jane Doe's, but aren't quite sure how. Because many people are working from media that's already available, you know, looking for news articles, um, you know, going out and saying, okay, what's there? How can I talk about this? And the trouble is that with a few notable exceptions, there's just not media there about many John and Jane Doe cases. So what I began to do as someone who is trained in primary research um, and archival research was to look at how I could create that media myself and make that available and get people involved in John and Jane Doe cases. Because the point is, if you get that out there, then people share it. Um, and you make that media you know, on a platform and you get flyers together. Um, that's how cold cases get solved. Uh, there was just a major Jane Doe case solved this week through a tip, and that was Christmas Doe, who was identified as Kenyatta Odom. That's a case from 1988. And it's one of the first Jane Doe cases I ever covered. Um, so I truly believe that public attention is what gets cases solved. So I've been covering Doe cases since 2018. And one of the things I realized very early on was that I had to learn about science, cover these cases well, because what I would get were police files. And often what was available, they're, they're not going to have, you know, statements from family members in there, because these are people who've been disconnected from their families. I'm going to have um, statements from law enforcement. I might have an anthropological report, maybe a toxicology report. 
um, a report from a pathologist, maybe an odontologist, um, someone who is an expert in teeth, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I have two degrees in creative writing. So I am not someone who was, you know, trained to understand that. So I said, okay, I have to learn about this science um, and really the history of how people have become identified and, you know, predating DNA to really cover these cases well, because many of these cases predated uh, DNA science, both the STR testing um, that came first and the SNP testing, which is what's used in forensic uh, investigative genetic genealogy. So, you know, when I was approached to write a book, um, I had really been immersing myself in all of that. Um, I had begun working with scientists, both the people who were kind enough to teach me, um, who've become my friends, but I'd also begun collaborating with scientists to work with them on cases. And my job there is as a researcher. So I would gather information for folks, you know, the kind of stuff that we as researchers, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, do, dig into census records, um, you know, you know, not only just, in our, you know, archival news, but, you know, go looking for yearbooks, go into the fields, all the kind of stuff that as an academic, you're very used to doing, not that useful in the real world, but can be pretty useful in a cold case. So I've begun working with a few people on a few cases at that point. And when I was approached to write a book, I said, okay, I don't want to write about, you know, a serial killer, but I'd love to write about unidentified persons cases in the United States um, and beyond. What people don't know about them, I'd like to make the science accessible to everyone so people can understand what I've learned. And I'd like to help people understand why cases get solved, why they don't get solved. And also I'd love to follow a case in real time. So people can really see that unfold and see what it's like for families um, who are left without those answers for so long. And I was working on a couple of different cases at that time, um, looking, you know, we had gotten a small amount of funding, looking for the right case um, to focus on. And it just so happened that a case that I've been following for a long, long, long time, it just so happened that everything came together and a case that I'd known about probably since 2015, 2016, I don't know, I've been seeing it for so long, the case of Ina Jane Doe, um, a woman who was killed and whose remains were found in Ina, Illinois, um, which is a really rural area of Illinois and a state park. You know, it just happened that the law enforcement there had decided that they were willing to work with us on a reanalysis of her case. And us in this case means myself and my colleague, Dr. Amy Michael, who's a biological anthropologist who practices forensic anthropology. And because they were willing to work with us, and that just kind of came about when I was beginning to work on the book, that was the case that we were going to focus on. And that's sort of how it all began. That's uh, that's absolutely uh, fascinating. And you kind of hinted there at the end that you, you teamed up with some people to do this. I mean, taking on tackling a, a cold case, a doe case like this requires a lot of help and a lot of brain power. Uh, can you tell me about who you, who you teamed up with and, and how vital they were in this whole process? A case is always going to involve a lot of people and it's not just the people involved now, right? I mean, a 30-year-old case, you can imagine how many people have been involved in work that case. When we accessed the file of Ina Jane Doe, as she was known then, um, it was 400 pages long and so many experts had worked on that case. So I do wanna acknowledge that first. But in the present day, um, we began with myself, and I was really embedded both to follow the case in a, you know, a journalist capacity and just to assist as a researcher. 
and Dr. Amy Michael, a biological anthropologist who practices forensic anthropology. Um, there was a number of other people, Stefan Poltak, who is an anatomist. We, we worked with uh, Astrea Labs, um, an incredible lab that does just some of the most impressive work I've ever seen. Um, they're out in California. We consulted with a number of experts across the country, but the people that need to be highlighted most especially are Redgrave Research. They are a forensic investigative genetic genealogist. Um, they also have a separate nonprofit called the Transdo Task Force, um, and they are the people who eventually ended up identifying Ina Jane Doe and solving the case. There are also a number of other anthropologists, um, so like Samantha Blatt, she worked on the case as well. Les Fitzpatrick, she also consulted. And so many other people we just called in for advice. Um, you know, Dr. Albee, he's a dentist in New Hampshire. He gave us help. So um, a forensic artist, Carl Koppelman, he did the art in the case, the updated art. You know, the acknowledgement list gets pretty long. Um, so it was definitely a group effort between so many people to really go through and reanalyze a cold case. And you look at it from so many different angles because you never really know what's going to be the thing um, that could end up resolving the case. Is it going to be, you know, re-examining um, a decedent's teeth? You know, is it going to be updating art and recirculating that? Or are you going to move into DNA, you know? So every single person is really important in that case. You you talked a lot about uh, all the people involved, and, and from what I gathered from the book, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of experience prior to reading your book to, to really knowing what went into investigating these these dough and cold cases. And you talk a lot about uh, forensic anthropology and how important forensic anthropologists are to these cases, and also how they're often um, you know misrepresented in, in mainstream media when it comes to you know TV shows, um, you know stuff like that. So I'm wondering, um, but like, what do forensic anthropologists actually do? Uh, and I guess, you know, on top of that, like how vital are they to these cold cases? I think that it's just kind of treated in mainstream media as this kind of sexy profession. And I mean, I think that's down to bones, right? And there's nothing wrong with bones. I mean, I enjoyed that show. And I think it also sends a lot of young people toward the profession, which is definitely a good thing. But I think the idea we get is that, you know, this brilliant scientist kind of wanders onto, you know, a crime scene, uh, which is actually really a recovery scene um, where bones are found. That's always a recovery scene and sort of just declare something. Um, they wander into a lab with this really amazing equipment. Um, they never have that. You know, they bring up something on a screen, uh, you know, that's showing everything from different angles. And they're immediately able to, you know, solve a crime. And there's just so many other different levels to what forensic anthropologists do. Um, you know, deciding whether a case is even forensic, which means, you know, related to a crime. Um, figuring out if remains are historic. You know, trying to understand whether or not remains are um, associated with NAGPRA, which means that they're remains that should be going back to a native um, nation, you know? Um, there's just so many different things that forensic anthropologists actually do. Usually forensic anthropologists are not working with the kinds of resources that we see. Um, many forensic anthropologists are not employed directly by law enforcement. Um, they could be working with any number of agencies. Um, quite a number are professors, you know, at universities. Now, often they are working with law enforcement, but that's something they're doing on top of their regular jobs. There are forensic anthropologists to, you know, or rather anthropologists to do forensic anthropology, you know, is one of their many tasks. 
um, who might be working, you know, with museums. Um, they might be working with uh, POW, MIA. There's just so many different, you know, variations there. It's a wide scope there. And I keep saying who practice forensic anthropology because biological anthropologists to study bone. Forensic anthropology is technically a certification. Um, so to be a forensic anthropologist is like, you know, a technically a very specific job title. But there are many people who do forensic anthropology who haven't taken that special certification. What forensic anthropologists do um, in terms of, you know, relating to crime is they look at the, what's called the biological profile. And the biological profile has to do with um, ancestry, um, which a lot of people think of as race. It has to do with sex. Um, it has to do with age. And it has to do with stature. And those are the kind of key features. When you look at a profile that's been developed for an unidentified decedent, you often see like an age range, a height estimate, um, an ancestry estimate, um, and a sex. Like that's been figured out by someone who's studied the decedent's bones. But a forensic anthropologist is going to do much more than that. They're also going to be looking at trauma um, that may have occurred. Were they injuries that healed a long time ago? Um, were they injuries that occurred at the time of death? Was there any kind of trauma that happened post-mortem? Um, and that could be something that occurred because of just natural damage due to the elements. Um, it could be something that happened due to animal predation. Because to the untrained eye, that's something that could look like, um, you know, a violent action, right? But in reality, it's something that occurred naturally via nature. So a forensic anthropologist is trained to understand that. Um, they understand taphonomy, you know, the effect of the environment on bone. They're trained to go out into the field um, and find a bone and understand what's human bone versus animal bone. And they also understand that, you know, their field's not static. This is a pretty young field, comparatively speaking. Um, and, you know, we didn't learn everything that we needed to know about um, the human skeletal system, you know, back in 1990. So if you get a case from 1990, um, there's been so much learning since then, um, you know, and you know, the development of digital systems um, that can be helpful, you know, and several generations of scientists, you know, who have kept, you know, refining their work. So it's a, it's a really active field. Um, and I do want to also really drive home that forensic anthropologists identify people all the time. Um, that's something that's important as well. It's just often not in the news because it's something that happens, you know, pretty quickly. So it's a field that's super vital, obviously, in terms of uh, any kind of crime investigation. Another thing that was, again, not knowing a lot about this subject, or maybe not knowing as much as I should considering the, the, the podcast that I host, but you know, one another mainstream thing uh, that you often see in TV shows, especially, is that you know DNA is used to identify cold case or doe doe victims. Um, and you know, I think that's pretty prevalent. I think that's what most people think. But you know, reading your book, not only was I surprised um, that there were so many other alternatives, but there there you know often DNA is not the best way or or is impossible way to to identify a, a doe. So I'm wondering, can you tell me some of the other ways that you learned along the way that you know we can identify these people and and hopefully help bring a, a name to 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 the unidentified? Absolutely. Um, so. The first thing that comes to mind for me is dental identification. And I cannot stress enough how important dental IDs are because the comparison of teeth is really about as unique as a fingerprint. Um, and dental identifications are really considered to be a confirmed ID. So, you know, an ID that's straightforward, 
you know, comparing specifically um, x-rays of teeth, you know, that's going to be something that is really clear um, and that tells you that person is who you think it is. Um, fingerprints. Um, of course, fingerprints cannot always be done um, for the obvious reasons, but fingerprints are another way. Um, some other things that are done and still need, you know, I think oftentimes another kind of secondary confirmation, but looking at things like medical implants, um, especially those that have serial numbers on them. So that's yet another kind of ID. Looking at various uh, specific trauma that's happened. So if someone had a specific operation, left really specific trauma, um, looking at, you know, bone fractures. And once again, you know, just one broken bone is not going to do it. But if someone had a really specific kind of injury and you're looking at also other factors, you know, if you're looking at, you know, stature, if you're looking at if everything's adding up there, you know, so sort of like, you know, adding up all of these things together, that can really lead towards an ID if DNA isn't possible. I mean, obviously DNA is the gold standard, but there are some cases where that's just not going to be possible. Um, it may be because simply the decedent is not available for testing. Um, it can be because remains are too degraded for testing. So there are other ways to do this um, that you know can still lead to a confirmed ID. I was really impressed, and I think it, what, what helps really drive the narrative of the book is how much you immersed yourself in this world and in this case. And I'm not just talking about like online, like you traveled all over the country to follow up on leads and to visit the scene. That moment in the book, and I, you know, again, I'm trying not to spoil too much, but it, it was one of the most powerful moments for me in the book was when you actually finally went to the scene, um, you know, where uh, you know Jane Doe was found, and and it seemed like to me the way you wrote about it that it was maybe overwhelming based on the information and what you were seeing and maybe it added more questions to what were already in abundance. I'm wondering, can you tell me about what that was like at that point in that investigation and, you know, did going to the scene help, you know, ultimately shed any light on, on who Jane, Ina Jane Doe was? What it really drove home for me is like, you can do so much research um, and just still get things wrong. Um, or still just not be able to gather as much as you can, like, when you go to a place. And I know this because of the obsessive amount of research I've done into things. So when you go somewhere um, and actually see it in person, um, the description even of, like, what, you know, there, the area where she was found was uh, referred to as the primitive campground. Um, and that was simply meant to explain that it didn't have all of the features of the nicer campground area. You know what I mean? Like it really was for kind of like rough camping. Um, but the way that it was described um, everywhere from police files to online, it, I realized that it was described in such a way that it was actually when I got there, like it was pretty hard to pin down. And being there, um, and now it's 30 years later, like it's not like you're expecting to like, you know, find something, but actually being in the place um, is an experience that you can't really replace, even with all of the research, even with, you know, pouring over the internet, with Google Maps, with everything that you try to do at home. You simply cannot replace it with actually being at the place where something occurred. Um, and it just kind of reminded me with, of the inexact nature of trying to recreate an experience from home versus going to a place. Um, that's what it drove There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Home for me. What was it like? like geographically visiting a place and, and you know that you hadn't I, I'm assuming before you know you found out about the Ina Jane Doe case probably hadn't been before like it, to me it, it seemed like in the book it, where Ina Jane Doe was found was very rural um, not heavily populated like can you give the listener a sense of like what what the area was like that Ina Jane Doe was found because I think it really does add to how difficult it would be to to discern who this individual was yeah so we're in an area of Illinois, um, Jefferson County. So it's this area where um, there's a larger town that's still small, which is Mount Vernon. That's where the sheriff's office is. Um, and then it's right on the county line, right? But right before that, there's Ina, Illinois. And then on the county line, um, there's another couple of small towns. So um, it's just a very rural area. Um, Ina is so small that even to this day, there's just a couple of stores. And, you know, back then there was one street light. I can't say that now, but, you know, there was literally one, you know, traffic light at the time back then. And when you're in the area, you get the sense that it's a very close-knit community. And once it became really clear that the woman who was known as Ina Jane Doe was not from the area, we really started looking at the highway system that surrounded it because it is a town that really is nestled on the highway system. And it became kind of frighteningly clear to us that someone had probably traveled straight up the highway and purposefully um, done that and maybe even pulled off um, without much of a sense of where they were pulling off, except that it was secluded to dump her remains. Um, and this is something that um, we haven't talked about, but um, she was dismembered and only partial remains were found in the park. So this really was a sense that perhaps this area was chosen mostly because it was out of the way um, and, you know, the sense that she was being separated even as far as possible as she could be from perhaps where she was from, um, from other areas where maybe other parts of her body had been left. So... It was that juxtaposition of this very small, close-knit community and this crime that had kind of entered that place from somewhere else. Um, so you really got this sense that um, not only was it shocking to the community, but that they didn't even know where to start. I mean, the law enforcement did a very good job. But when you have someone um, who has purposely been removed both from where they are and their identity has very purposely been obscured, picking a small town very far away from where they are, um, dropping someone so close to a county line. Um, and when you enter the park from the back, which is 
what we think that this person may have done based on where she was in the park, it's really clear where the county line marker is too. It actually goes straight through the lake where the park is. And you can see it from the back of the park where you pull in. You just got the sense that that was done purposefully. Um, and it's just this really kind of chilling feeling when you're there. Um, that's kind of hard to explain. And I don't think that you could get that feeling unless you were there and kind of followed that track. And I just thought a lot about the people, not only who were involved in the investigation, um, but the people who lived there as well and what that must have felt like at the time. Yeah, and I think um, it's important to say too, and I probably should have said this earlier in our interview, but there wasn't, like when we say remains, there wasn't a lot found. Like what what was found, like you said, it was partial remains. It wasn't it wasn't like it was a whole body and it had been there for some time. I wonder if you can like just really quickly speak to that. Like what what initially police and investigators would have been working with? Because, you know, I think maybe for some people who haven't read the book, obviously they would they would know this if they've read it, but if they haven't read it, maybe they're thinking of, you know, there's this is like something, you know, pretty fresh that we're dealing with, but it it, it wasn't necessarily like this was this was very much um you know, partial remains that were were difficult to identify. So unfortunately, um, they only recovered um, her head and a few of her vertebra, and she seemed to have only been dead for a few days to outside maybe a weekish. Um, it was really difficult for the medical examiner at the time and the pathologist to really determine that. Um, it was winter, so it was just difficult for them to determine. It seemed like she had not been dead long based on the information they had at the time, but with so little information, um, with partial remains, especially in 1993, and, you know, with most of her identifying features being purposefully removed, there was very little they could do in terms of identification. I mean, even what they could do in terms of things like age estimation, um, that had been purposefully, you know, removed by her killer. Switching back to you know, not being at the scene. And, I, and I'm curious, maybe this is maybe a bit more of a broader question. And it, I think it maybe does in some ways from your experience speak to solving the uh, Ina Jane Doe case. But obviously social media is such a prevalent part of not just our society, but I would, you know, for lack of a better term or phrase, like the true crime world. I think there are a lot of people out there who want to get involved in these cases and try and, and help solve them. So I've got kind of a two-part question for you and, and feel free to break this down any way you want. But, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, how useful is social media as a tool in general when you, you know, when you're investigating a case like Ina Jane Doe, um, you know, like are, are tools like or applications like Facebook, are they, are they helpful? And then secondly, you know, and maybe this is me leading, leading the, the, the interviewee, but you know, if people, you know, want to get involved in the cold case and maybe don't have the means to travel and go to the, the scene and things like that, like, you know, wh where should they start and what can they do? And I guess, you know, to lead into that is social media, you know, a good place for them to start. Absolutely. Um, I think social media used well is an incredible tool. And I think it's also a tool that evens the playing field in a lot of ways. Um, I don't just like social media, and I'll say why in a second, but um, I ask my listeners and readers to use social media all the time because, especially on Facebook, um, you can reach older people, um, people who may not be on TikTok or Instagram. I make posters all the time, flyers for older cases because I work on cold cases, especially from the 80s, 70s, 90s. And sharing a poster, um, sharing an older news story, um, and we, we boost them a lot, you know, which is just paying a small ad fee 
and target them to a specific area. So, for instance, um, in Ina Jane Doe's case, when Carl Koppelman did the new art for her case, um, that was released by the sheriff in the area. And so many comments came in um, from people who remembered the case from 1993. And with the new art that got conversations going, um, people started saying things they remembered. That's an incredible tool. And we do the same thing um, on the fall line, and I do it in my own private work as well. You know, get a picture of a ring out there. I'm doing that right now. I have a picture of a ring that's, you know, targeted to Tennessee saying, do you remember this ring? Do you have a loved one that you haven't spoken to since 1988? You know, let me know. Um, so obviously that's a really important tool. And I think that what listeners can do on social media um, is share photos, you know, flyers, from Doe cases. And I think especially concentrating on cases in your own regional area is massively important and so helpful. You can look up news stories. Um, I especially find that local TV stations tend to be the best for that, for covering those kinds of stories. And you can share them on social media. And to look them up, um, you can use NamUs, and you can use NamUs for your state and look them up. You can also um, look on the Charlie Project, we'll sometimes list them, but especially Doe Network, you can look for your state and find ones close to you. Um, other things you can do is if you like to research, um, you can research a case, um, find a case that you're interested in, start learning for keyword searches, you know? So um, I look up everything, you know, of course, unidentified, but remains, body, skeletal, woman found, man found, et cetera, you know, for a case that you're interested in. Um, gather those articles on newspapers.com, you know, Genealogy Bank. Um, if you're a student, you have archival access that you're going to miss once you're not a student anymore. You can look on um, your college uh, news archival access. Um, you can look up Newsbank or Lexis. Gather those articles. You can put them on. If you want to, you can put them on your own social media. You can share them on TikTok. Um, some law enforcement may be open to you um, offering to just give them those articles for their files, because often I found that law enforcement does not have archival news in their files. Now, are they going to give you access to their investigation? No. But you can say, hi, I've been researching this case, and I have these uh, clipped articles I've arranged in a folder. Would you like them? Many law enforcement um, agencies will say, yes, thank you. Um, that's a completely non-invasive thing you can offer to do if you're interested uh, in helping. And like I said before, um, you can make posters yourself as well for a case that doesn't have any. You know, you can get the proper information off of NamUs, and you can make a flyer. Um, I make them for cases that don't have forensic art because they never have flyers. You can share those as well. So I think this is all a wonderful thing to do. But we also have to remember that a lot of older people don't see social media. Um, they are much more likely to see newspapers. Um, they're much more likely to see the TV news, flyers that come um, in the mail. So another thing you can do is really focus on asking your local news stations to cover cold cases. Say, you know, hey, the anniversary of this case is coming up. Um, would you do a story? So that's another incredibly helpful thing you can do from home that I really encourage people to do. The most incredible thing, and it, there's a bit of a spoiler here, but I, you know, you, you said you have no problem talking about it. And I think it's no. important to talk about it in this case is that, you know, there are podcast narratives out there about cold cases. A lot of them, you know, they're still searching for an identity and for answers, but miraculously and lay them to rest, you and your team solve the identity of Ina Jane Doe uh, and who she was. And so 
first, like, can you tell me what that was like? And ultimately, what, what was the tipping point that, that got her identity and confirmation and you were able to solve the case? I guess, I guess we can't say solve the case because we necessarily don't know what happened to her entirely, but I guess, you know, getting her identity. Yeah, she was identified. Um, so the first step's done, and that's important. But we still need to find out um, who killed her. So, yeah, but for sure, the first step is there. So first, I don't want to claim any credit for identifying her. Um, I was happy to be a team member um, and to help work on her case. But so once a DNA profile was successfully developed by Estrella, um, and they actually developed the profile, they had both hair and a tooth to work with, but they developed a successful DNA profile from one piece of rootless hair because um, they're an amazing lab. And once a DNA profile was developed, it was uploaded into GEDmatch by Redgrave Research. Um, and I honestly knew that they were going to identify her. Um, I didn't really have any doubts once a successful DNA profile was developed. And that's just because they're that good. Um, I have personal experience with them being that good. They were able to identify someone in my own family, um, not in a forensic case, but in a you know case of someone not knowing who their father was. So, and they did that quickly. So I knew they were going to be able to do it. But when the case was uploaded to GEDmatch Pro, and that's specifically the portal that's used for law enforcement for forensic cases, and if your listeners aren't aware of what GEDmatch is, GEDmatch is the public database that's used for genealogy, for DNA. So we cannot upload, you know, a profile for a forensic case to like Ancestry or 23andMe. That's not allowed. People have to voluntarily take their DNA um, profiles, they download them as a zip file, they upload them to GEDmatch, they check for law enforcement, and then that's when we can use them. So when that was done and the profile was uploaded and finished batching, and what batching means is that um, it's done, you know, fully processing and then can be compared to other cases. When that was done and it showed that there was a really high match for her in the system. And what a high match means is like not a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad. I mean, that would be beyond amazing. But uh, about a first cousin once removed was the rough relationship. We didn't know precisely at the time the relationship, but that's what it turned out to be. It could also have been like a half niece, half nephew. There's like all these relationships. I knew they were going to solve it quickly. Um, I didn't know how quickly they were going to solve it. They ended up solving the case in about six hours. Um, I was unfortunately asleep, which uh, I will never live down. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was like, oh, I have a couple days. I need to go to sleep. Woke up, um, and I was staring at a photo of a young woman, Susan Menard Lund, who had disappeared in Tennessee, not Illinois, on December 24, 1992. And when I woke up and saw that picture, which was her senior yearbook photo it was black and white um but i could tell that she had red hair just like the woman who'd been found in ina illinois in 1992 i'm sorry in 1993 and then i just got to researching and trying to find out everything we could find out about her um and the first thing i did was track down her yearbook so i could get the color photo and um it was you know amazing to see her but i've been thinking about her um and who she was and as a person the whole time. So I've been, you know, prepared for that moment. But it was still um, an emotional experience is kind of difficult to articulate because I, you know, never had it before. Um, I work on cold cases all the time, and I work with families all the time. I work with families who are waiting for answers, um, and we hope they're going to get them. 
but to be working on it from the other side um, and knowing that I'm going to be speaking with a family who's about to get an answer is a very different kind of experience. Oh, I want to say for the record that I don't think anyone could fault you for being asleep when that came in because uh, <laughs> by the time you get to that point in the book, like it's clear that everyone is exhausted from from doing this work, and so uh, it is. It, I will not lie; it is a little bit of a uh, you know unfortunate or, and maybe a little bit of a, a funny anecdote, um, just because yeah, it's I was fun, like yeah, yeah, because like <laughs> of was, course the timing of it, that, right? In my defense. Those ge- genealogists are infamous for staying up all night. I don't know if it's just in their nature or what. I've never met one that doesn't stay up all night. They're they are night owls, and you know, I'm just a mom, man. I gotta get a kid up for school, you know. Well, totally. And you know, you're you were researching this case. You've podcasts, like you've got a lot on the go. So I mean, I, I think you know, <laughs> don't be too hard on yourself. And I and I mean, you know, it's. Funny though, yeah, and it must have been pretty amazing to wake up and see that photo and just be like, "Oh my gosh!" Like this is that person, you know? We've we've identified them. So, um, yeah, that that was an incredible moment in the book. So you've identified her. You know who she is. You're you know you're digging into her, but we don't know what happened to her. And I know this is kind of a tricky area because there's you can only say so much. But I'm wondering what can you tell me about what's next? You know. Um, you know, can you say anything about an investigation that's happening? I know there's a reward that you want to mention. Like, can you yeah. just tell me anything you're allowed to say about, you know, what is currently happening in, in the second part of this investigation and finding out, um, you know, who did this to her? Absolutely. So I've been working with Sue's family um, since she was identified. Um, and there's a lot in the book about that. And your listeners can learn all about her um, and the strange circumstances of her disappearance and why it took so long to identify her. Um, there's so much about that in the book. But I, like I said, I've been working with her family um, since then because that really is part of my role. Um, you know, experts from that aren't law enforcement, you know, but more on the medical legal side of things, um, you know, from the forensic investigative genealogists, um, you know, to anatomists, to anthropologists, they don't work with family directly. Um, you know, they serve families. But from my side of things, that is something that I have the honor of doing, is working with families, interviewing them afterwards. And through that, I've been able to learn quite a bit more, um, some of which was passed on to law enforcement, but some of which I was able to write about. And through learning about Sue and through working with her family, We've been able to gather enough information um, to really work hard on a campaign for her homicide investigation. And a couple of important things have happened there. So the first is an establishment of a reward. And that reward is $10,000. It does not expire. Um, And that reward has been put up by myself and by Dr. Amy Michael. And it's um, being advertised pretty heavily right now. Um, we tried to time it with the release of the book so it would get as much um, notice as possible. We worked with Sue's middle daughter, Crystal, um, who is one of her main advocates now, to apply for a grant from Season of Justice, um, which is my favorite nonprofit. Um, they have two arms. One arm works to fund law enforcement initiatives for things like DNA testing, all kinds of you know cold case stuff that needs money that's hard to get. And they have one arm um, that really focuses on what's called family awareness grants. And those are grants for everything from billboards to bus ads, yard signs, you know, newspaper ads, 
because there are places in this country that don't have billboards. You know, Maine doesn't allow billboards, something I learned. Other places, um, so for instance, on the Blackfeet Reservation, um, they decided in, with a grant that they got um, through the Season of Justice for a case that I worked on with a family there. They decided to do, instead of a billboard, um, banners that could be reused at marches for several members um, of um, MMIP families, so missing and murdered indigenous people, um, and T-shirts to give out instead of doing a billboard. So there are campaigns that are really tailored to what the needs of the families are. So Sue's daughter, Crystal, applied for and got a grant that was also timed for the release of the book. And she disappeared from Clarksville, Tennessee, actually. So that's, you know, quite a haul up to Illinois. So they paid for a billboard campaign through Season of Justice. They have her um, unsolved homicide billboard just plastered all over Clarksville for the past month. And that campaign runs through, I think, the end of this month. It started in early October. So getting that information out there, um, especially in Clarksville, because she actually went missing um, on what we think was probably a walk. There's a lot of unanswered questions there. But, you know, anyone who may have seen her out, you know, on that evening that she disappeared, we want Clarksville residents um, to contact the authorities, um, Jefferson County up in Illinois, because they have the case, and, you know, let them know anything they might know. There are some wonderful advocates at a podcast called Navigating Advocacy. They're doing a mailing campaign to I'm Illinois right now, sending out flyers physically in the mail, which you know is something we just talked about. You know, so important to reach people who may be older, you know, and that's especially a small town. They only have a couple of billboards in that whole area, so it's really hard to get billboard space. But, you know, it's easy is to send something in the mail. So that's something they're doing. Um, they're helping in that way. So the big thing we're doing now is really trying to attract attention to the fact that her case is not over. She's been identified, but there are still so many more questions. So we're really trying to ask people to share her case. Um, they can get a flyer for her case that's printable on my personal website, lauranorton.com. And my name is spelled with an H, not on Norton. That would be weird. L-A-U-R-A-H, norton.com. There's a flyer that's printable. There's flyers that are um, shareable for social media on the Fall Line podcast, uh, Instagram, and on my personal social media, which is Lay Them to Rest on Instagram. You can share them anywhere. We'd love to get them shared all over the place, but especially in Tennessee, Illinois, Indiana, you know, any of the surrounding areas. Um, and that's really what we're hoping for, is to stress to people that just because she's been identified, um, the case is not over, because her family has had one set of questions answered, but they have a whole second set of questions that still need answers. Thanks for listening to my interview with Laura. You can check out her social in the description, as well as links to her book, Lay Them to Rest. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show appreciation, you can buy me a coffee at the link in the description. If you want to support the podcast on a monthly basis, you can head to the Patreon. For $5 a month, you get ad and sponsor-free episodes, exclusive content, and early access to all new episodes of the podcast. If you don't want to spend any money, but you want to support the podcast, you can always leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Also, you can find the Missing and Unexplained podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.